0: All right, uh, our next uh, guest and also our speaker this morning is a wonderful man. He wrote a biography on William Wilberforce and one on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Both were instrumental in formulating uh, what we're experiencing here now at Godspeak. When I read those two books, and we did them on a Friday morning with our men's study, and we went through these books, I began to realize that these these historical figures that Eric Metaxas wrote about and did it so eloquently and so insightfully were prototypes for what we're experiencing here in America, and those kind of characters are needed now more than ever. He's written biographies on Martin Luther, uh, a number of others, and he has a new book about his uh, coming to Christ, and he wrote it in such a way that... uh, um, it's not your typical Christian book, and it kind of gets you at the end. So if you have friends that just don't know the Lord that want a book that's going to kind of grab them uh, and really awaken them to the grace of God, this book is it. I haven't read it, but hearing him talk about it and hearing the stories of his life is remarkable. He's gonna, uh, I, I'm not even going to contend with him because he, uh, if I try to combat him with wits, uh, I bring a knife to a gunfight. He is, he's fully New York, and plus he's a mixture uh, his father's Greek, his mother's German, which means his mother pays for everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. And And listen, he's got a, a body like a Greek temple. It's in ruins. Please welcome Eric Metaxas.) Wow. Wow.
1: I, uh, I don't know where to begin. I First of all, thank you for uh, letting me uh, speak from this pulpit. I have to tell you, Dave uh, Englehart um, and Bethany and I, we've we become friends. And uh, they let me speak at their church. And the anointing on your pastorate is way greater than Rob's anointing. Uh, it's kind of amazing. Kind of amazing, because you know you can't fake the presence of God, and Rob knows that he doesn't even try. You know, he doesn't even try, but uh, you should make an effort. You should, but but honestly, no joke. My wife and I we live in Manhattan, we live in New York City, and um, I I guess you know it, it's fascinating to me to come to California and to meet all these heroic pastors and churches. It's an extraordinary thing, and I realize that things are so bad here that. You know, the, uh, the tyrants have awakened a sleeping giant. Have you seen the movie Tora, Tora, Tora? You know, Tora, Torah, Tora on the battleship, we have awakened a sleeping giant. It's like, yeah, you're going to get it now, Hirohito. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have bombed Pearl Harbor. Very bad. Well, can I tell you, that's what happened with Newsom and the whole gang. It's like, they shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have, we told you not to do that. Now you're going to get it. Yeah, we're going to send you back to... uh... Well, you know, I say that, and to be perfectly honest, we know that it's God. We know that God is the one who uh, enables us to do anything that we do that is good. We need to know that, folks. You don't want to have fleshly pride, it's me or it's us. But the point is that we know that God allows us to serve him and to be uh, his voice in our culture. And it is a fascinating thing when you try to make sense of what's happening in this country and what's going on. I mean, first of all, we need to know that it's uh, like that passage from, from Scripture. I don't know where it is, but, you know, where, where uh, Elijah is really bummed out. Is this the one where he's under the broom tree? You know, I didn't go to seminary, so I don't know. He's under the broom tree, and he's kind of bummed out. And, and, and you know, God lets him know, like, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We need to know in this country, there are so many people who think just as you do, and there are way more who they see what's going on. They're not fooled. Uh, you know, just because the, the media, I mean, even if you're watching conservative media, you know, they're, they're kind of, I mean, they're, they are in it for the money, okay? We have to understand that. And in case... You didn't know that that was true. You know, you figured that out in the last, whatever, eight months or something. They're in it for the money. Uh, it doesn't mean some of them don't believe it. But the, the point is that they're, they're in it for the money. And fear sells. Conflict sells. But you can't do that from the pulpit. From the pulpit, you've got to speak the truth. And I, I'm here to tell you that God commands us, commands us to rejoice in him always. So you could be in prison, you could be persecuted for your faith, but you've got a little secret. Jesus actually defeated death on the cross. He destroyed death and sin. You need to know that's true. That's not a nice idea we tell ourselves in church. It's either true or it's garbage. It's true. And the fact of the matter is when you know that, you're going to live differently. The scripture also says, be anxious for nothing but in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. It's like a heavenly father saying to us, just like you would to a little kid, like, I don't ever want to see you worrying, wringing your hands. You come to me if you have a problem. And if you don't, I will be angry with you, because I told you, when you have a problem, you don't take it on yourself, you come to me. God says that to us in his in His mercy, because he wants us to know that he is in charge of all things. We take our problems to him, and he's going to do what he's going to do. Sometimes he lets us go through tough stuff, but he says, trust me, don't fret. So the church needs to know, now by the way, the underground church in China, they know this stuff. People who are really being persecuted, they get this, right? That God is God, and we're going to worship him and praise him no matter what. And you need to do that. And by the way, That's also, it's a form of spiritual warfare. We know this is a spiritual battle. Now, it's being manifested uh, in the natural. It's being manifested. But it is ultimately a spiritual battle, okay? Freedom is not neutral. Freedom is a God thing, okay? And all of these things, uh, God is in it. And so the enemy that we're fighting is not flesh and blood. It's not Gavin Newsom. It's not, these people... Uh, many of them are, they're tools of the enemy. They know not what they do, you know? And uh, I, I think that we need to know that God wants to be with us in the battle, wants to encourage us, and wants to tell us, be anxious for nothing. The difference between Christians fighting and non-Christians fighting is Christians are supposed to have joy. If you don't have joy and peace and faith, people look at you and they just think you're just like anybody else. You're just a culture warrior, Now, you know, a culture warrior, that can be a good thing. But I'll tell you, it's better to know you're walking with God. And the only reason you're on the right side of an issue is because of his grace. It's not because you're better. We need to know that because God will honor our humility and say, God, uh, thank you for helping me to see what you see. Thank you for helping me to be a warrior. But I really want to say that, you know, being in a place like New York where this is happening, we don't really have the same kind of heroic pastors uh, that you have here. And I, you know, the whole reason, many reasons why it's kind of the geography and stuff like that. But it is true that D- Dave Engelhart. when I went to your church, I just thought, whoa, yeah, this is it. Your church is going to grow brother. Cause people are so hungry for that. I mean, look at it this way in the natural, if Rob McCoy's church could grow, <laughs> now, I'm just saying, I'm not trying to put Rob down. All right. Rob knows he he has severe limits in terms of ministry and stuff like that, but God uses you know the broken, the weak, the, the the even the chubby. I would say that you know that if you're chubby, God can work with that. It's a kind of a physical humility to 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 walk to be on a stage, you know, looking like Rob. You got to understand that is that's humility. He doesn't need to do that. He can work out, but he's lazy. You know, not everybody not everybody's uh has, as, you know, uh, yeah, okay. Anyway, you've been a great audience. God bless you. Good night. Um, I'm here to tell you, I'm really here to tell you the story of how I came to faith. It's a crazy story. My book uh, is called Fish Out of Water, A Search for the Meaning of Life. And it's just like Rob was saying that basically I wrote this book. The, the publisher, who's a non-Christian publisher, Wanted me to write like a really Christian book. Like they, I guess they think that's my brand, that's gonna sell. So they want a book about faith and stuff. And I said, no, I said, until my 25th birthday, when Jesus appeared to me in this dream and spoke to me and whatever, I was not like running around thinking about God. I was just like anybody else. Like, you live your life, you don't know: is there a God? Who is God? Can I know God? You know, that's kind of normal, right, in this broken world. And I was just one of those people living my life. I was not an evil person, but I was lost. And the fact of the matter is that this non-Christian publisher said, no, no, we want a Christian book. They rejected the book I wrote. I said, I want to write a literary memoir. Now, it ends with this Jesus stuff, but the rest of it is just my story. And a lot of it is insane, crazy stuff. It's funny. I mean, there's funny stories that are totally true and uh i and as I said no it's, we, we were really looking for this kind of a book this is the non this is the non christian publisher they were looking for a christian book so i had to go to a christian publisher to publish my non christian book <laughs> and so and even when we get at this label like christian not you know i just want i want people like who are on the page maybe that some of us are theologically to be able to share this book with people who are not and so, there are some people that if you give them like an overtly christian book they will be like well thank you that's not really my thing right well, God is your thing, but people don't know that. And so you have to approach them a little bit obliquely sometimes. And that's, that's what, what my hope is for the book, that when you give it to somebody, they'll just read it because it's a great read, we hope. But uh, the ending is kind of like, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a Jesus ending. So I don't know how much percentage of the book needs to have Jesus in it to make it a Christian book. I, I think that... Uh, Whenever you talk about this stuff, it's like, are you eating that apple? Is that a Christian apple? Just to be clear, like, is that a, Are these chairs Christian chairs? I kind of want to know, like, you know, were they made by uh, pagans cursing when they made it? Like, is because that's everything? You know, th- sometimes we label everything like it's Christian, it's not Christian, and God doesn't see it that way. Okay, every good thing is of God, whether you know it or not, okay? Every tree, he invented trees, did you know that? But he doesn't carve his name on it so that you know it's a Jesus tree. They're just all Jesus trees. Every planet, you know, uh, Neptune is a Christian planet. You know, you don't have to label it a Christian planet. Everything in the universe, actually, Abraham Tocqueville, he was a Dutch statesman and a theologian. He Famous statement, Chuck Colston used to quote this in every speech, and I love Chuck, he became a friend. Chuck Holston used to always quote Abraham Tocqueville. He said that uh, the, the quote is that there is not one square inch of all creation over which God, who is sovereign, does not say, Mine. Every part, politics, life, culture, trees, birds, planets, every atom, it all belongs to God. And He wants us to bring Him into everything, not to keep it in some religious corner. Okay? And so sometimes it takes. COVID and tyrannous government to force the church either to go deeper into the religious corner, to hide there, like, let me exist, please, or if you're really the church, to step out of the religious corner and to say, no, Uh, we are familiar with our constitution, talks about religious liberty, and frankly, if there's religious liberty, it doesn't mean I get to do, like, my little weird thing on Sunday morning in that building and No, 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 no. They have that in China, okay? That garbage they have in China. Here, we have religious liberty. It means I can exercise my faith when I leave this building 24-7 every day of the week. And that's what, if you're not doing that, you're not living out your faith. That's what your faith is for. This is just to fill up and then move out. This is not your Christian experience. This is just a little piece of it. We're supposed to live out our faith in every Sphere. And I really think that it takes a time like this to wake people up and you kind of see what's going on. I, um, my parents, uh, you know, as I tell my story I have to mention, my, as, as Rob said, very funny Rob. Not all of his jokes are funny, that was a good one. Uh, he needs to retire the foreskin joke, I just want to be clear on that. It's, a, it's not funny and it's inappropriate. Um, but it's biblical, but it's biblical. Um, But uh, basically, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. If if my dad came from Greece, my mom came from Germany in the 50s, they met in an English class in New York City. And uh, if you're raised by uh, a Greek and a German, that means by definition you will be raised Greek. That's just the way it is. Uh, Actually, the cover of my book, Fish Out of Water, is that's my father at the Statue of Liberty, 1958. Beautiful photo taken by my mom. They were on a date. Kind of, you can't make this up, right? Little did they know that, you know, they were taking a picture for my book. How many years in the future? 60, 60 years in the future, or whatever it is. Uh, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing to me uh, that, uh, that they went on a date to the Statue of Liberty, and my mother snapped this beautiful photo. But they, you know, we have to understand, those of us who are blessed to have lived in America, not everybody here, but most of us... Um, except for my parents, I wouldn't know how great America is because they came from countries where they don't have this kind of freedom. My mother came from war-torn Nazi Germany, which became East Germany taken over by the Soviets and communism. So when she came here, she was like, yeah, this is not normal. This is a blessing. This is fantastic. My father came from war-torn Greece. Uh, where they had the communists trying to take over their government after the end of World War II. He hated the communists. He taught me to hate the communists. My mother taught me to hate the communists. To know that is evil. What we have here is amazing. And, you know, they didn't even try hard to teach me this. It just kind of came out of them. You hear stories. And I think that that's what we've forgotten in this country. Most people who grew up here, or your parents grew up here, you kind of think, like, hey, this is nice. This is normal. This is not normal. This is sick stuff. What we have here is, like crazy this is not normal in the world they don't have much of this this is a blessing if you're not aware of the blessing shame on us for not being aware of the insane blessing that we've had in this country and i wrote a book called if you can keep it i, I think they ran out uh, of the copies of it but that book i i i began to understand as i wrote that book we we are given such a gift and it is our job to keep the republic to keep the freedom to live our freedom We are experiencing that right now in this country. We're beginning to understand what we have, and it could go away just like that, and it should go away. But God, in his mercy, allows us to have what we don't deserve, and I believe he's using this period to teach us. I don't think God is done with America, folks. I want to tell you. And if he is, we're going to praise him anyway. But I'll tell you what. I don't think he is. I think he has his hand on this country. And he's going to use this time in a way he's using it to school us, right? To teach us, like, you better stand up. You better better push back. Learn to push back. You're doing God's will when you push back against tyranny or any of this kind of stuff. Because God wants to use this country for the sake of the whole world, folks. There are people like my parents that they look to America like the torch of liberty. And they're thinking, could we Could we come there? Could we live there? Could we bring that here? Could we have that in our country? All the freedoms in the world at this point, they have learned from the country that started it, folks. We started this. We never had anything like this until 1776. It's, I mean, that's three other sermons. But I want us to know... God has a plan for this country, and sometimes he lets it get really dark to wake us up, right? Uh, sometimes he lets us suffer because he loves us, and he wants us to wake up and to teach us. And I think that's part of what uh, is going on. That certainly happened in my life. I came to faith around age 25, and what I went through before that, you know, I, uh, God in his mercy let me go through that so that uh, I would turn to him or be ready to turn to him. But so the basic story, you have to know three things so that this dream where God spoke to me at age 25, so makes sense, right? So, basically, I mentioned my father's Greek, my mother's German. Uh, I grew up in that Greek community. I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church, and a lot of folks know that if you go to a church that's kind of like an ethnic church, right, a lot of times they're more about the ethnicity than about the Christianity, right? Like, it's kind of like the Greek community. So, like, the Greek festival kind of sums it up. Like, Zavlaki, Jaro, we love each other, opa, and that, like, that's it, go home. So... Now, i got to tell you, most of that is just wonderful. It's wonderful. But when you get out into the real world beyond your little community, like I did, you know, I had the privilege to go to one of the darkest places on the planet. It's called Yale University, right? If you want to, like, learn, like, how the globalists think, you know, you can go there. And I, I went there, and it just blew my mind because I was not raised to think of America as... You know kind of not a great thing, and I was not right. Ra- I was raised with traditional heartland values, but in the Greek church and in a lot of churches, I think they kind of take it for granted right you 're baptized all right you 're done right well no that 's just the beginning. You have to live out your faith, but we didn 't read the Bible and pray at home and any of that stuff. So by the time I went to college, I was like totally unprepared for getting hit with the secular tsunami or whatever we 're calling it today but I was um, nonetheless blessed to grow up in this Greek community, and Greeks are very proud to be Greek. Uh, in fact, they look down on you if you're not Greek. I just want you to know, because they can't help it, they're better than you, what do you want them to do? Pretend like you're equal? That's not going to happen. They know they're better. They invented democracy and like, science and like, pretty much everything, but... They are, are so proud of, of their being Greek that they're very generous about it. And they will, they will happily make you Greek if you want to kind of pretend to be Greek, whatever. So, you know, my mother was embraced, uh, you know, even though she was German, uh, she was embraced and stuff. But I always felt like a fish out of water, which is kind of the title of the book, right, to, because I felt... I wasn't Greek enough, like, because my mother's German, we don't speak Greek at home, you know? So it was kind of this weird thing, and I had a typical immigrant uh, uh, upbringing. Well, there's no typical immigrant upbringing, but with just a lot of miscommunication and craziness. Like, my father, I remember when I was, um, you know, because if you have a father that did not grow up in America, right, they just, there's certain things they don't get. They don't do, you know, baseball, and they don't, you know, play catch with you in the yard. They're like, why would we do that? Like, why would I do that? Um... (laughs) You know, he's like, you know, I didn't even have a father and we were getting shot at, so shut up and, like, do your homework and, you know. So, uh, so my father, I mean, my, my father, he was, always, he was worried about how he's being portrayed in the book. He's 93 and he's very concerned about his reputation, right? So uh, he kept saying, like, and I said, Dad, you're like the hero of the book. Like, you're, you're like, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's in some ways the story of his love and my mother's love for me that, that made me who I am. And they didn't know Jesus in the way that many of us do, but, you know, love and any good thing is of God, whether it's labeled Jesus or not, every good thing is of God. And so, I guess, you know, growing up, my parents' love for me is everything, but there, were we- there was weird stuff, because they just didn't get, you know, the way America works. So, like, we, uh, we kind of, I remember when I was, like, five, my brother and I went, my dad took us to a park in Queens, New York, and we were, like, you know, kicking a soccer ball around, because, you know, we don't do footballs and baseballs. We, so it was a soccer ball, kicking around, kicking around, and we were, like, sweaty and tired. We were, like, about five and four or six or something, and and we hear the ice cream truck. It was in the summer. And we're like, oh, dad, can we have ice cream? You know, we went nuts. You know, kids go like nuts, the ice cream truck. And uh, my father, and this is true, just to show you like how he's not tracking. Um, my father, and he can, you know, now people say, well, he's in his 90s. No, he was like this in his 40s because I was there. He was the same. My, fa- my father says in all seriousness to us about the ice cream truck, he says, no, 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 it's not necessary. He says, I have V8 in the back of the car. And he meant it. He meant, like, why would you, what are you talking about? We don't have to spend money, like, to get, buy ice cream. I've got V8s in the back of the car. What more would any child want? Uh, You know, then gaggy, warm vegetable juice, you know, that's in the pizza oven of the car trunk. And literally, like, the ice cream truck went away. You know, we were good kids, though. We loved my dad, so, like, we went along with it. We weren't, you know, going to rebel. And so uh, later on, he pops the trunk, and he pulls out the you know, the warm vegetable juice, and he's like, come on, here, come on, he's drinking it, and he's like, no no, thanks, we were not, uh, we didn't love my father enough to be able to drink V8, uh, even if it was served over ice, but there's a lot of weird stuff like that, I remember when we went to McDonald's one time, I was like maybe 11 or 12, my brother and I go to the McDonald's with my father, McDonald's, right, and my father, you know, never went to fast food, my mother normally took us to McDonald's or something like that, so he comes in, and he looks around, and then he says to the, you know, young person behind the register, and... Uh, give me one uh, whooper. <laughs> and my brother and I, just like we wanted to crawl under the linoleum, like duh, our, our life flashed before our eyes. Because first of all, it's pronounced whopper, dad. Whopper. It's not whooper. And by the way, we're in McDonald's. That's not, they don't have whoppers here. That's across the street at Burger King. I, we can't believe you don't know that. I'm so embarrassed. I want to die. So... You know, so now when my daughter like rolls her eyes or sneers at me, it's like it's payback for the way we treated my father. But, but the fact of the matter is, we just we just want to die. Like a whooper! Give me a whooper at McDonald's! No. So actually, I'll tell you one more quick one. When I was about 18, we were filling out financial aid forms at the uh, the kitchen table, which was like about the worst thing. Like anything, filling out forms or anything like that. Like I I was I was just like already going nuts, and my father. And I got in some kind of a tense thing or something like that. And as an 18-year-old, I said something that normally I wouldn't say. It was kind of like I probably heard it on TV, right? Like, what do people say when they say, I don't want to talk about it? Like, I would never say that in real life. I don't want to talk about it. But I said it to my father, sort of disrespectful. I don't want to talk about it. But my father, totally out of character, responded with his own cultural cliche which he had picked up maybe in the carpool going to work or something because this never would come out of his mouth he meant to say when I said I don't want to talk about it he meant to say what do you think I am a leper right that was like maybe in the 80s I was like what you know what am I a leper hey and uh or what am I chopped liver but he was going to say what am I what am I a leper but did my father say that no no what did my father say in the moment of tension I say I don't want to talk about it he explodes he says who do you think I am a leprechaun Yeah. That happened. That happened. So instantly, like, I burst, like, into laughter, like, okay, Dad, I think this fight is over. We love each other. My father had no idea what a leprechaun was to this day. I don't think he knows what a leprechaun is. Uh, And I'm glad, because I hate the Irish, let me tell you. I hate you. So, anyway, uh, so... So it, it just nu- it's just nuts growing up with this, like, you know, miscommunications, whatever. But there was a lot of love, I'll be honest with you. And I, you know, the Greek thing was obviously really important to us growing up. And the, my hobby was fishing. Like, I, we moved to Danbury, Connecticut when I was nine. Bass fishing, fly fishing, what, whatever. That was kind of my thing. Uh, my brother's still huge into, like, you know, uh, tuna fishing and whatever. So th- this was kind of, like, who I was in terms of what, what was my hobby and what do we do for fun. Um, the, actually, the two things are kind of come together when one day I remember we were driving. This is in the 70s, and we pull up behind a car uh, at Exit 8 in Danbury, Connecticut, and I see the fish symbol on the back of a car. And my father says, "Do you know what that is?" No, and he explains to me. He says that the Greek word for fish, the ancient Greek word, is ichthys. Okay, somebody you know, ichthyologist is somebody who studies fish. Uh, if you have tropical fish, they get the ick, right? That's, that's the word, this means fish. And my father says the Greek word fish, the acronym of the letters in the, the Greek word fish, spell out Jesus Christos theos, imon, sotir. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. So the symbol of the fish, the early Christians, when they were being persecuted not, not as badly, obviously, as you are in, in California. But the point is, they were persecuted. And they had this secret symbol. But the symbol didn't just mean Jesus is a fisher of men. It meant fish meant Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. When you saw the fish, it meant Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. They understood that. So my father shared this with me. And, of course, he was more excited that it was a Greek word than about the Christian part. He was, You know, he cared about the Christian part. But the Greek thing, you got to know. It, it all comes from that, right? So, um... So that was, you know, just something that I picked up growing up. I did not, I, you know, I want to make clear, like, a lot of people in America, we kind of think like they're atheist Marxists or they're Christians. That's not true. Most Americans are good people. They respect God. They just aren't sure who God is. Um, and they haven't heard who he is. And I was one of those people. I went to church. I respected the idea of God. I respected family. I respected these things. But I'd never gotten the download of who Jesus is, that I need to give my life to him. Uh, The the whole thing about that he died on the cross for me, that I need to thank him for that, that I need to give him my heart and my life in gratitude, whatever, that was never given to us. Again, it's kind of like, you know, you're baptized, you're Greek, you're done. What do you you want? Like, you're done. But when you get to a place like Yale, you find out, no, there's a world out there that's going to challenge your beliefs. So... As I grew up, I had experiences with God. We went to a, a Russian Orthodox church, which is not supposed to happen. Greeks are not supposed to be with anybody else except Greeks, right? But somehow, because it was Eastern Orthodox church, we went to a, a retreat. I was maybe twelve, and and I heard this stuff for the first time, and it really touched my heart. And I prayed by myself every night for a few years, but there was zero follow-up. There's no discipleship. So by the time I got to Yale, I wasn't really so sure what I believed and suddenly, as happens in a lot of universities, you're totally challenged and you're not prepared, you're not sure what you believe. so. Here I am, and, you know, sure enough, I drank the Kool-Aid. I was a, a working-class immigrant kid. This is the dream, get a place like Yale, fantastic. So to tell me, what's the meaning of life? What's truth? What's whatever? And, you know, their answer is, uh, well, life doesn't have meaning. We don't go there, right? But we know that Christians are insane, and uh, right-wing stuff, we're not, you know. So, like, I kind of drank that Kool-Aid. I wasn't sure what I thought. But I came up with, you know, if the three things in my life that are important at that age, at age 25 when I had the Jesus dream— the first one is the Greek stuff, the second one is that I did all this fishing, uh, and the third one is kind of the life of the mind. When I was in college, I was trying to figure out the meaning of life, and I wasn't doing it very actively, but I was just kind of, it sort of was, was what I was thinking about, and I was thinking about religion, and I thought, well, if it's not Christianity, maybe it's all religions are saying the same thing. We all hear this, right? It's not true, but we hear this over and over, like, yeah, all religions are saying the same thing, and what are they saying? Well you know, not much, let me put it that way. But I remember coming up with this idea about all religions being the same, and it was sort of tied into something I heard in class. Uh, I took a class, we talked about Freud, we talked about Carl Jung, and, and, and Freud and Jung talked about the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, and Carl Jung talks about the collective unconscious, which is baloney, but uh, it sounded good. When you're 20 years old, you suck this stuff in. And I thought, collective unconscious? And he says, the collective unconscious of all humanity your collective unconscious, whatever the heck that is, uh, that's God, that's the divinity, that's Godhead, right? And you think, well, that, yeah, that makes sense. And of course, that's a New Age idea of God. It's kind of an Eastern idea of God, that God is kind of, you know, all of us, all of our unconsciouses, that sort of divinity. So what does that mean? It means nothing if you think about it logically. But when you're an undergraduate, you don't care. You're just kind of like, that sounds good, yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of thought, you know, I came up with an idea, like an image. I thought, OK, a frozen lake. Imagine the ice is the conscious mind, and the water beneath it is the unconscious. And so the, the idea of all religions is to kind of drill through the ice to get to the collective unconscious. That's kind of what all religions are. So when you talk about being born again, the Christians talk about that. It's to it's drill through the conscious mind to touch the God energy. Now, again, if this sounds stupid, that's actually because it is stupid. But, you know, when you're 20, you're like, sounds good. Do I need to change my life in any way? No? Excellent. That's my religion, right? Yes, yes. It doesn't really require anything of you. You know, you can still sleep with your girlfriend if you choose, you know, because nothing matters. Now, if you go to this church and you think you can sleep with your girlfriend, that's not good. Okay, so I'm not going to preach on that, but you know who you are, and it's got to stop yesterday. Why? Why does it have to stop? Because God loves you, you idiot. Because God loves you, yes, and he wants the best for you, and he has a plan for you, and if you go outside that plan, he can't really bless that part of your life, and you'll regret it. And in the book, I tell a story of how I came to regret it big time. So I live this stuff. I'm not judging because I lived it. And I know that uh, apart from God, we are capable of really cutting our wrists, folks. Apart from God, we're foolish. God, in his love, wants to communicate everything to us because he loves us. Now, if you know who he is and you know that he really loves you, you want to do what he wants you to do, even if it's difficult, because you, know you owe him a billion times more than that, first of all. And secondly, if you do what he asks you to do, you benefit from it. He's not trying to keep you from having a good time. He's trying to bless you. So it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you don't let your little kid have cotton candy for every meal, why is that? Because you're mean? No, it's because you love them. And in fact, you love them so much that you'll put up with their screaming at you how mean you are because you love them that much. Well, God loves us a little bit more than that. And so he gives us these rules and things and we kind of act like, oh, that's, that's kind of an annoyance. No, that's because he loves us. And so we need to understand that when you obey God, you're doing that because he wants to bless you. If you don't want to be blessed, keep doing what you're doing. But if you want to be blessed, and you know, if you're scared of things like hell and suffering, which all of us should be, you know, you, re- you realize, like, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go through misery. Uh, and if you go your own way, believe me, again, I tell the story in the book, but it's like, uh, God loves us. And, you know, he's patient with us. So when I was that age, I was really, you know, I thought, yeah, that's kind of the meaning of life. Well, uh, I think at places like Yale, they kind of they don't get into the whole meaning of life. Why? Because they don't believe there is such a thing. They believe we're just kind of here. And, you know, the love that you feel for your spouse or your kids or your parents, that's just chemicals, you know, that, that the evolutionary process created you to kind of feel these feelings, to perpetuate the species. But it's completely meaningless. Like, you know, you have, your life has all the meaning of a cockroach. You, your life has no meaning. But we don't want to get into that because it's a little depressing. If you think about it too hard, you might kill yourself. So we're not going to talk about that. But that's the fact. There's no God, and there's no meaning, and there's no goodness, no truth, no love. That's just chemicals designed to perpetuate the species. Well, you don't want to think about that. So what do they say? Well, they say, here's what we say. Uh, since there's no God, that's good. You can do whatever you want, so you can have some fun in life. And by the way, um, you probably want to get a good job and work really hard and have a good life because that's all there is. So don't think about the meaning of life. It's depressing. Work hard, get a good job. And, you know, on the weekends, there's like alcohol, there's sports. You can, you can just keep your mind on other things. And in a few decades, it'll all be over. So you'll get through it. Well, I was an English major. Therefore, I did not get a good job. Uh, I graduated, I floated and floundered and drifted, trying to be a writer, and it wasn't good. And if you float and flounder and drift after college, you will move back in with your parents. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt. There's no way around it. It's like Euclidean theorem, you're moving, you're moving back in. So I moved back in with my parents. My parents, in case I didn't mention it, they're European, working class European immigrants who do not do not like really smile at you when you come home after they've paid all this money working meal jobs to put you through Yale, and you come home, you're like, oh, I'm lost, what's going on? Hey, what do we do? They were not very happy, right? So my friends from Yale, like their parents would be like, oh, Eric's finding himself. And my parents are like, yeah, Eric should find himself a job because we didn't get to go to college, much less Yale, much less live in America. So what in the world is your problem? Uh, and it's not like they didn't have a point. So it was, let me just say it was a hard year living at home, and not only that, but I had to get a job. And what kind of a job do you get with a Yale English degree? Yeah, exactly. You're in trouble. You should have thought of that. And um, I got a, I got a job. Uh, the only thing you could really do, I got a job as a proofreader at a chemical conglomerate, Union Carbide Corporation in Danbury, Connecticut. It's their world headquarters. The most miserable, horrifying job. I was the editor of the Humor magazine in college. I wrote poetry, short stories. I'm an artist, whatever. Now you're going to go to a fluorescent hell every day, and you're going to have a little cubicle next to the the copy machine and a quarter of a mile from the nearest window because you're in the middle of this vast building complex. It was so so unpleasant and every day that's what i did and then i went home to my parents it was it was tough it was no fun i mean i can laugh now but at the time it was it was bleak stuff it was really bleak and i was really wondering what's it all about like what what does life have meaning that's when i really was like what is it i know it's not that christian stuff because i know but what's the story and so god in his mercy by taking me through this tough period um he brings somebody into my life, a graphic designer who would deliver stuff for me to proofread. Uh, His name was Ed Tuttle, and he was a born-again, you know, Jesus-loving Christian, but I didn't really know that because he said he went to an Episcopal church. I figured they they don't believe anything, so if he goes to an Episcopal church, it's okay to talk to him because they don't believe stuff. So he and I would get in these conversations, and it becomes real clear, like, he believes all this stuff, and I knew, like, you know, I don't want to go there. I don't want to become one of these right-wing religious freaks. But at the same time, I was in enough pain to be willing to continue the conversation, sort of, right? And so this kind of cat-and-mouse game went on for months. He's sharing stuff with me. And I was kind of blown away at how I didn't know anything about the Bible or anything. But at the same time, I was not, like, ready to do Bible study or go to church. When he would suggest that, I was like, no, 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 I, I don't come that close. I don't want to become like you and your freaky friends. I don't want to become one of you. So... <laughs> It was one of those, you know, weird things. But as I said, I was in enough pain that the game, you know, we kept talking and stuff. But I didn't really open up. Um, But around my 25th birthday, my uncle passed away. And that kind of led me to this friend said, why don't we pray for your uncle? Something happened. And uh, I I feel like my, my heart just opened a crack to the possibility of God. And not long after that, I had a dream. And in the dream, and this is a straight-up miracle, there's no other way to put it, um, the dream was a really symbolic dream, but I knew exactly what God was saying to me, and it wouldn't have meant anything to anybody else. It would just be like something I ate, and you'd forget about it. But I knew it was not just a dream. It was a mind-blowing, life-changing vision from God. And what it was, uh, you'll get it from some of what I've said, in the dream... I was standing on Candlewood Lake on the ice in the middle of the winter. We were ice fishing. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous winter day. Very bright sun, blue skies, white snow, white ice. And we were there ice fishing. And I look at the hole that we've, you know, drilled in the ice or cut in the ice. And there's a fish kind of sticking its nose out of the hole. And I look down. And now if you've ever ice fished, that doesn't happen. So I look down and I... I reach down and I pick it up by the gills, as you do when you get a fish, and I, and I lift up a rather large fish, like a pickerel or a pike, and it's a bronze colored fish. And in the bright sunlight, it looked golden. The light was shining on it, it looked golden. And then in the dream, I realize no, it doesn't look golden. It is golden. It is made of gold, and it's alive. It is a living, golden fish, like in a fairy tale. And in the dream, I knew instantly that this golden fish and this whole experience, God had just one-upped me with my own symbol system. Because God said to me in the dream, not in words, but I knew as I hold up this golden fish, he says, you wanted to drill through the ice to touch some God, some divinity, some energy force, something... And I have something better for you, Eric. I have my son, your savior, Jesus Christ. The golden fish was ichthys. I knew in the dream that God had just said to me, I will see your dopey Jungian model of the soul and new age God who does not know you, and I will raise you infinity. I will give you my son, your savior, Jesus Christ. I knew in the dream that this fish was Jesus, and that he had come from the other side to me, and it makes theological sense looking back on it, what does Jesus do? He, he leaves the place where he belongs to come to this place to die, and in the dream, I knew that God was speaking to me, and, and that he knew me. Imagine that in the dream, I knew that, you know, the ichthus thing, these things were not in the front of my mind at age 25. It was just like it just came together. And totally blew my mind that God says, this is what I have for you, Eric. You were looking for this. I have this, Jesus. And in the dream, I was flooded with joy. I knew that it was real. I knew that I had Jesus, that my search was over. It was true. He was God. The Bible was true. I was flooded with joy in the dream. I knew that my search was over. And the next day, I told my friend Ed Tuttle at work. And he says, well, what does it mean? And I said, it means I have accepted Jesus. I would have never said that before. I would have been embarrassed to say that. And by the grace of God, I have never looked back. I knew it was real. He spoke to me. I I call it, you know, the secret vocabulary of the heart. God knows each of us so intimately that he can speak to you in a way that would not mean anything to anyone else. He knows everything about you, and you need to know that's the God who loves you. He's not like he died for humanity. He died for you. And knows you intimately and he proves that to us in many ways but in that dream he made it clear to me that you're not just somebody you're someone that I know intimately I love you I know you more intimately than anyone can ever know you I made you I invented you I love you I cherish you now if you know that God feels that way about you which he does about you. It doesn't matter who you think you are, what you've done. It does not matter. He made you. He adores you, and he wants you to know that he adores you, and he knows you intimately, and he wants to have a personal relationship with you because he adores you, and he has a plan for you. My friend at Tuttle, I remember he gave me um, a card with a scripture written on it before this dream, and it said, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. It's from Jeremiah. Plans not to harm you, but plans to give you hope in a future. That's when I first began to think, maybe, maybe God doesn't want to make me a religious fanatic. Maybe he, he knows the plans he has for me, and he wants to bless me, but I need to turn my life over to him. And in the dream, I did. It's an amazing thing. I was unconscious, so I can't take a lot of credit for this. <laughs> and that's a picture of us who we are spiritually. We are spiritually dead. We don't do anything. We don't go like, I chose Jesus. You chose nothing. He chose you. And somehow, maybe, you know, you wake up to that and you accept it. So, it's a story of a God that is so amazing. And I tell that story just because, you know, you, you don't need to have a dream like this. It's just, this is reality, folks. This is reality. He knows everything you've done and he loves you. And he wants to pull you toward himself to, to, to help you to be the person he created you to be from before time. But we have to assent to him in our hearts. He will not force us. He loves us that much that he won't even force us. But it sounds like a good deal. It is a good deal. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, that you are real. You're not a figment of our imaginations. We may have questions. But Lord, you give us enough that even with our questions, we can open our hearts to you and ask you to answer our questions. Help us, Lord, to find you as you are, to accept you, and to walk with you in everything we do, because only you know why we're here. Only you know where we're supposed to go, where we're not supposed to go. Lord, we put our hands in yours, and we say, lead us, Father, in heaven, because you love us. We choose to go with you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you.
2: Amen. Go ahead and have a seat for a minute as we wrap it up. What an incredible story about God's detail and how He loves each one of us. And each one of you in this room have those individual stories where the Lord spoke to you in that secret language of the heart, which I love that phrase. I've always called it, the Lord knows the key to every single heart. Because, you know, a key, the master key to a person's heart. You go from a guy that most of us... um, Well, I shouldn't say most of us. Somebody like me did not come from the Ivy League, right, to get saved, and not with even cool Greek words. So for me, you take a redneck in Idaho that's uh, the closest thing to white trash that you can possibly see, right, raised by a crazy ex-con uh, the Lord's touching my heart for weeks. I don't know it's the Lord. I'm just running from God. I'm in trouble with the law because we beat some guys up really bad, and one of them about lost his eye. And I wake up on this Sunday morning in February of 1984. I wake up, which was happening to me all the time, you know, when you go to the bar and you close it down, then the, the party usually moves to a home. And then you go to a home and you you just pass out somewhere in the evening, hopefully safe enough so that your friends don't shave off an eyebrow or things like that, because that's the things my kind of friends, you, you ever wake up in the morning and see somebody without eyebrows? It's the weirdest thing. Their, their forehead looks like it's that long. And those are the things that my friends would do. If you're going to pass out, you want to lock yourself in a bedroom and, uh, or you're going to be in trouble. So I wake up in the, this morning and I don't know where I'm at. So I actually have, have to stumble out the front door and find a street sign. And go, oh, Okay, I'm, on the, I'm the, on the president's streets. I know where I'm at. And somebody wakes up, because it's 11 by then, because we didn't go to bed until 3 or 4. And the bar's open again, so we just go right back to the bar on Sunday and start all over. And I put a couple of drug deals together. Somebody wants some pot. I know this guy across the room. I hook it up. This guy wants some cocaine. I hook it up. And I'm kind of lit by now. I've had five, six beers. And I go home. And I'm wandering around the house, and I'm all by myself. But I had been haunted for months. The hound of heaven, the spirit of God was after me because I had a grandmother praying for me and just give up. If grandma's praying for you, just totally just give up. And she was a fiery Oklahoma grandmother with a great accent and a pointy preacher's finger. And I mean, the girl could preach. And, but I had always ran from Jesus. And I'm going back and forth. I turn on the TV, there's nothing good on. I turn on the radio, there's nothing good on. I'm pacing back and forth in the house. I'm 19 years old. And there were no cell phones. <laughs> it was a beautiful life back then. <laughs> I remember the day. You could be alone with your thoughts without ding, ring, ring, ra-roo. Please leave your fax machine at home. So in that moment, the Lord spoke to me in a still, small voice. It was one word. Pray. It was so clear and from another world that it just, like, shook my mind. It was so powerful that I spoke it out loud and laughed. I went, pray? <laughs> Nuts. I had never prayed in 19 years of my life. I would bowed my head out of respect for my grandparents when they blessed the food. I personally could never remember a time of uttering a single word to God in 19 years. And as soon as I said, pray, the presence of the living God filled the room with a guy that was half drunk who had put a couple of drug deals together and was in trouble with the law for a guy about losing his eye. And Jesus' presence filled the room. And I fell on my knees, and I began to weep and to sob. And my prayer was so short, It was God. I said, God, please forgive me for all my wickedness. Because that pretty much covered it from A to Z. After crying my head off, I couldn't remember the last time I had cried at 19. I began to leap around the house all by myself. I'm having my own little dancing party. I'm like, I'm saved, I'm saved. If you would ask asked me what that means, I don't know, but I'm saved, I'm saved. Jesus forgave me. And from that point on, when Jesus meets you like that, (sighs) I mean, it's so good right to that moment and then it just, like, so diffused. But... You know, God's grace, he loves you. And he's brought you, most of us here in more benign ways or more dramatic ways. You see, your testimony doesn't have to be dramatic. It could be simply driving down the road and just saying, Jesus, I need you. But I wonder here today as we close, not only for the salvation of this soul, but how many of you came in here so burdened? Because there's something on your heart that is just crushing your soul. And Jesus knows all about it. He sees your tears in the night. He sees, he hears, he knows. Some of you are driving down the road here like, Lord, this is my life. Lord, speak to me today. Speak to me today. As we close right now, I want to pray for us. But specifically, I want to pray for those hearts. You know, the Bible says the Lord is near the brokenhearted. You mean it is actually a theological concept that the more needy you are and your heart is broken, Jesus draws near. He sees it. He knows it. And and there's an attraction to that that He is the answer. The broken heart. He's the heart surgeon. Let's pray, Father. We just ask that by Your Spirit and Your grace, You would meet us right now in this moment, Lord. The hearts of Your people that are here and there are some broken hearts and those who are needy hearts, they need to open their heart to you. And Lord, you know them by name. You've numbered the very hairs of, the, of their head. Lord, by your spirit, draw them to yourself and lift their burdens, Jesus. So we're just in attitude of prayer right now. If there's a burden that you need to lay at Jesus' feet, I want to encourage you to do it before you leave this place so that you can go in the lightness of his love and his grace. I just want you to stand wherever you're at, and we're going to pray for you. Don't worry about the person that's next to you. None of us know what's going on in your heart, but you do. Just stand up right where you're at. We're going to pray for you. We don't want you to leave the same way with that burden. God's grace is touching. God bless you back there. Lord's just speaking to you. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He wants to come in and have intimate fellowship with you to invite you into this place, this burden that you have. Lord, bless you back there. Anybody else before we pray? God bless you. The Lord's talking to your heart this morning. Don't leave the same way with the ton of bricks that's been on your heart. Father, thank you for the men and women that are standing at this time. Just by standing there, opening their heart by faith and saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, cleanse me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, those who are standing, we just lay these burdens at your feet right now. Because you said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Lord, would you exchange the heavy yoke that each one of them are carrying, Lord, for the lightness and the ease of knowing you and having fellowship with you. And we ask that you would touch their hearts and fill them with your love, your joy, and your peace as they leave your house. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together with them. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Eric's out there with his books. You can get a book signed. May the Lord keep you and bless you as you walk with Jesus this week. Let's worship him with our hearts.